0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Making Choices, Improving Outcomes in Pediatric ALL, The Role of Modern Asparaginase Compounds. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RRV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is
1: Dr. Luke Mays from Huntsman Cancer Institute. Welcome to this educational activity on making choices with asparaginase compounds and pediatric ALO. If you haven't watched the introduction, which contains useful information about this question-based program, please do so now. Let's discuss some background on asparaginase therapy and challenges that present barriers to the effective use of this medication. We have had asparaginase now for um, over a half a century. And this was first discovered in 1963, interestingly enough, in guinea pig serum as a potential modality, a therapeutic modality to treat lymphoma. And over the past half of a century, we have moved forward with our understanding of asparaginase and its potential role in the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So PEG or long-acting asparaginase was first introduced into our treatment regimens in the 1990s. This has progressed into the 2000s we then were able to utilize a different type of bacteria or antigen to produce asparaginase, and this was with winia based bacteria and this was approved in the late 2010s we then had another compound approved a long acting compound approved more recently asparlase or calpeg as sometimes it is known and most recently we have had a new compound approved recombinant winia that happened several years ago and is now being incorporated into therapy for patients who have had hypersensitivity reaction to long-acting asparaginase product. On the right, you see a breakdown of the asparaginase molecule and how it works, and the byproducts that you see, and the differences between healthy cells and lymphoblasts. In the 1970s and early 1980s, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute group, led by Stephen Salin looked at incorporating asparaginase into their upfront treatment for ALL, and noticed strikingly improved outcomes in both standard risk In high-risk patients, as you see there in the curve on the right, with standard-risk patients having over an 80% chance of event-free survival at five years, and with high-risk patients having over a 70% chance of event-free survival. So we know then that intensive asparaginase treatment also improves outcomes, and this was shown by Dr. Rob Peters in the Netherlands as he and his colleagues looked at seven different studies that looked at comparing trials – that intensified asparaginase versus ones with less intensive asparaginase, and in all of these seven studies, again, which included looks at European and U.S.-based studies, there were improved outcomes or improved event-free survival in those protocols which intensified asparaginase treatment. We know that despite all this data and, and progress, there does remain some barriers to effective care when it comes to asparaginase delivery. We know that asparaginase, just like all chemotherapy compounds, has side effects, and thus this may portend early discontinuation of your asparaginase treatment, as called for in your protocol. And Dr. Sumit Gupta and colleagues from the Children's Oncology Group showed in this curve that was reported recently in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, that in patients who missed asparaginase doses, as seen in the orange dotted curve, those patients had inferior disease-free survival probability. Versus those patients who either received all their pegylated asparaginase or long-acting asparaginase doses, as seen in the blue curve, and patients who potentially weren't able to receive their peg asparaginase doses but did receive all of their prescribed asparagin depletion with Erwinia substitution, those patients then had equal outcomes, which then demonstrated you know, the importance of completing your prescribed asparaginase courses. Additionally, this study did show that discontinuation of asparaginase was associated with a 50% increase of an event in a high-risk patient population. This was similarly shown by our colleagues in Europe. This curve indicates cumulative incidence of relapse in patients, specifically looking at their ability to complete their asparaginase-prescribed therapy and or having detectable asparaginase enzyme activity, which equates to effective action of the drug itself. And then you see in the blue curve, patients who did not complete their asparaginase therapy or did not have Detectable asparaginase activity; these patients had a much higher incidence of relapse versus those who were able to complete their therapy as prescribed. And so, as we know, that increasing age and BMI or body habitus do raise the risk of asparaginase toxicity. And this has recently been shown by Dr. Itan Orgel of the Children's Oncology Group and his colleagues, who looked at a high-risk patient cohort of patients with B-cell and T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, with specific attention to age, and body habitus as it relates to asparaginase toxicity. So as you can see on the chart on the left, with increasing age, you have an increased overall risk of experiencing asparaginase toxicity, and similarly in the bottom of that chart, with increasing body mass index, you can see the patients who are overweight or obese have an increased risk of asparaginase toxicity as well. He even went further and looked at obesity in terms of subdivision of classes, and this had to do with your percentile above the 95th percentile BMI or having a certain increasing BMI above that of 30. So those patients who are even at higher risk are those patients who have a BMI higher than 40. You can see there the obesity class 3 and the increased risk of uh, asparagine toxicity. So we know there are periodic challenges to product access of asparaginase itself, and this can be a problem as you think about the toxicities that patients may experience. We do know now, though, that prior shortages of standard Erwinia are no longer an issue for our patients as this has been addressed by the approval of Recommon Erwinia. And importantly, more recently, CalPeg or CalAsparagase Pegol, currently only FDA approved for pediatric patients with ALL age one month to 21 years, but there are availability of PEG-aspergase for patients who are older than 21 years of age. In this module, I'd like to review the role of asparaginase therapy and practice guidelines and provide an update on newer evidence with recombinant orwania. So as we look at an overview of asparaginase preparations, there are really four commonly used asparaginase preparations now in the United States. These include PEG-aspergase, calispergase pegol, erwinia asparaginase, and recombinant erwinia which received approval in the United States in 2021. These can be divided in terms of long-acting products, as you see on the left, the Peg Aspergase and Calibri Aspergase Pegol, and the shorter-acting products, the Arwinia products. They also can be looked at as divided by bacterial source, as you see, and as you pay a little bit closer attention to the FDA approval, this is notable as this changes based on patient's age and recommended dosing. Most importantly, looking at the differences between the long acting nature of pegaspergase, which is given every 14 days, versus calaspergase Pegol, which is given every 21 days. And then, as we look at the Erwinia asparaginase products, these products are given more frequently due to their shorter duration of action. Asparaginase compounds are well represented in our standard pediatric pH negative ALL regimens as recommended by the NCCN clinical practice guidelines. This chart shows you the pH-negative ALL recommendations for patients throughout the three predominant consortiums in North America. This includes the Children's Oncology Group, the Dana-Farmer Cancer Institute, and the St. Jude Consortium, which represents the total therapy regimens. For patients who develop hypersensitivity to E. coli-derived products, we know recombinant or cans be substituted as a component of multi-agent chemotherapy to complete the full course of asparaginase as prescribed. And these PEG-aspergase compounds are also part of the consolidation treatment or these regimens. This is similarly seen in patients with pH-positive disease. While pH-positive disease isn't as common in the pediatric population, it is still seen regularly at all of our institutions. And again, PEG-aspergase asperginase itself is an important part of the treatment regimen for these diseases. So as we think about recombinant or asparaginase in particular, the AALL 1931 phase two three trial looked at this compound in the setting of patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia or lymphoblastic lymphoma who experienced a grade three or greater allergic reaction to long acting e. coli derived asparaginase or silent activation. And this study had two parts. Part A encompassed the the major primary objectives of the trial, which looked at the intramuscular route of administration. Part B looked at The IV route of administration in Part B was more exploratory in nature as it wasn't the main focus of the study. The drug was given, replaced a long-acting dose of asparaginase with six doses given on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. As you see in the chart in the bottom, these was the time points in terms of our Part A blood pharmacokinetic collection. Collection was done at eight different time points throughout therapy, throughout this first course of therapy. And as reported in blood this year, There was a high proportion of patients who achieved the internationally recommended standard, the nadir serum asparaginous activity level of greater than or equal to 0.1 in the setting of receiving recombinant or There were three cohorts on the intramuscular route of administration part of the study, or part A, as indicated there in both graphs on the left and the right. On the left, this is the raw data of the nadir serum asparaginous activity level in the dark blue at 48 hours, in the light blue at 72 hours. And you can see with cohort 1A, we are achieving that greater than 0.1 level at 97% at 48 hours. And then in cohort 1B and 1C, this is achieved at both 48 and 72 hours. The graph on the right looks at mean asparaginase activity level. And again, with all of these cohorts at all um, time points, we are achieving this mean serum asparaginase activity level greater than equals 0.1 in the majority of the time. Now we'll explore some practical monitoring and mitigation strategies that can be used to overcome some of the challenges associated with delivering asparaginase therapy. So prominent asparaginase toxicities are known, and these are risk factors as we deliver asparaginase therapy to our patients. These four toxicities listed are what I like to term asparaginase toxicities of special interest. They are hypersensitivity, pancreatitis, thrombosis, and hepatotoxicity the rates of which are indicated, estimated there as well. These can be variable. It does depend on the population in the particular scenario as well. There are many known risk factors to experience these toxicities, whether it be the type of asparaginase therapy you're receiving, whether or not you have certain inherited genetic variants, age, types of exposure that you're seeing from your asparaginase, as well as ethnicity. When we think about uh, mitigation strategies for trying to decrease the incidence of these toxicities, there are several ways that this can be done. And one of these is reducing the dose or what we term dose capping and the patient population that we treat. In the graph on the left, this was investigated by Leibovitch and colleagues at a single center of a pediatric academic center that looked at thrombosis, pancreatitis, hypersensitivity and hyperglycemia. And as you can see, there is some increased incidence of thrombosis and pancreatitis and hyperglycemia to a statistically significant value in patients who received greater than the dose-capping dose, which typically would be one vial or 3,750 units of Pegaspergase. If we look on the right, this was a study done primarily in the young adult and adult population, and they compared dose-capping across this group, and you can see that there is a difference of any grade 3 or 4 toxicity, as well as if you look at age, and BMI in patients who did have increased doses given and did not have dose capping. But as we think about the pediatric population, the children's oncology group does allow dose capping for patients with a BMI greater than 95th percentile for age or BMI greater than or equal to 30. Another option for attempting to mitigate some toxicities is pre-medication. This of course refers to the toxicity that we're all aware of uh, hypersensitivity. This premedication has been talked about more over the past decade than recently. And so there are less reports and less historical things to compare to. We've used premedication in our patient population for many years, antibody therapy, chemotherapy, blood products, very commonly. The types of premedication used, antihistamines, corticosteroids are the most common. However, we do know that premedication is not standardized and there is conflicting data. Dr. Stacey Cooper and her colleagues at Johns Hopkins reported their experience, most notably in 2019, with premedication. And as you can see in the graph on the right, patients who did receive premedication in the blue, there was a notable decrease in the need for substitution with alternative birch preparations, and a decrease in significant clinical reactions. Again, it is important to note that there are conflicting evidence with premedication, and there should be more data to come. However, We do know people are using pre-medication, and this is something that we need to take note of as a key principle of asparaginase therapy is being aware of silent inactivation. Serum asparaginase activity levels can be used to identify rare patients who have neutralizing asparaginase antibodies yet do not have symptoms, and this is termed silent activation or subclinical hypersensitivity. In patients with silent activation that are not identified and switched to an alternative asparaginase product, do have inferior outcomes as has been shown in many different data sets and highlighting the importance of monitoring serum asparaginase activity level. And this is particularly the case when we think about premedication. In terms of silent activation, this is a phenomenon now that we are seeing more as we monitor for asparaginase activity in the setting of premedication. But as shown in the graph on top, the Children's Oncology Group Guidelines for assessing silent activation include you know, monitoring asparaginase activity level at either or all of these time points and then using that activity level to determine whether or not you have a subtherapeutic activity of asparaginase itself. As we think about symptomatic or silent activation, uh, we know this can occur in up to 10% of patients. This has been shown in several different studies. Pegasparaginase, the activity at different time points can be lower than at 14 days. This is agreed upon international level and people can use this as indication of silent activation. We do know that if you do have silent activation with a product, you should switch to an alternative formulation. But again, monitoring levels in the setting of dose capping or pre-medication is something that we all should be doing. So I'd like to share a patient scenario in pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia to demonstrate some principles of managing asparaginase hypersensitivity before touching on general toxicity management. If we think about a case that you all could potentially see this is an 11-year-old female patient with high-risk B cell ALL receiving PEG aspergase as part of induction or consolidation protocol, our current protocol within the COG. For this example, we'll be using ALL 1732. And so on consolidation day 15, the scheduled dose of asperginase was given via IV infusion. Two minutes after the infusion started, out of the 120 plan, the patient experienced generalized flushing, itchiness, lip swelling, hypotension, and wheezing. And we've all experienced this. If you've treated enough patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it can be a quite uh, scary thing to deal with. And so as we think about the implications of this and how to diagnose what's happening in this patient, we think about the timing of an event in terms of when the infusion started and clinical symptoms as clues that potentially suggest the etiology of this reaction being a true hypersensitivity reaction and the need to switch formulations should be considered. And as we think about hypersensitivity and why we're talking about this in its relation to infusion reactions, I think this is one of the most difficult things that we do as clinicians in the treatment of leukemia and lymphoblastic lymphoma. And our patients who are getting asparaginases, this is a very important decision that clinicians have to make. So hypersensitivity, we know, is a known side effect of asparaginase products. These are derived from foreign proteins. Hypersensitivity is antibody-mediated and these antibodies can be meted by exposure to these foreign proteins. And so the incidence, while it varies, much higher with native asparaginase products, more appropriately and more recently, the incidence is in between 3% and 30%. Most people would quote more commonly between 10 to 15%, but it can vary depending on the population you're studying. Fusion reactions you can see with any type of medication. As we know, we give many drugs that can cause infusion reactions. These are caused by a direct release of cytokines or histamine, activation of the complement system or potentially sharp elevation of ammonia levels. Asparagine is broken down into aspartic acid and ammonia by asparaginase, and this transient increase of ammonia can lead to what we call hyperammonemia, which symptoms include those similar to hypersensitivity, nausea, vomiting, headache, dizziness, and rash. But these are transient, and they do often resolve. Importantly, infusion reactions and elevation of ammonia are non-antibody-mediated infusion reaction and do allow possibility for re and patients are often able to complete therapy. Again, though, it is very difficult to differentiate these signs and symptoms because of the overlap that you see between hypersensitivity and infusion reactions. As we discussed a few slides ago, the timing is very important. Antibody-mediated reactions almost always require previous exposure. The highest probability we know with is on the second and third infusion, this is the highest time to experience hypersensitivity, it has been shown in the different ways that we deliver asparagines that if you're continuously exposed to it, a la the Dana Farber Cancer Institute approach to asparagine depletion, this continuous exposure does increase the incidence of hypersensitivity, although it still happens. And we do know that infusion reactions are also more common with the first exposure and do decrease with subsequent exposures itself. As we think about potential clues or clinical manifestations that may make you lean one way or the other, this graph or this chart shows The differences that you may see in terms of a clinical manifestation, hypersensitivity versus infusion reaction. And looking at the different body systems, again, you'll see many of the overlap from one to the other. Tried to highlight in red the ones that are more common with an infusion reaction, but again, it doesn't rule out hypersensitivity. In the blue, if you look at the respiratory body system, we've highlighted oropharyngeal or laryngeal edema as a clue into hypersensitivity. And this has been shown in several different studies across cooperative groups that this is more of a sensitive and specific marker for hypersensitivity. But again, always have to take the entire patient picture when you're trying to diagnose hypersensitivity versus an infusion reaction. And so in our patient, though, the patient had a, experienced a very fast reaction on the second dose of asparaginase that they received and had many of the telltale signs of hypersensitivity. And so what do we think about in terms of that patient in infusion reactions, in terms of the option for proceeding but well, with infusion reactions, you can re-challenge patients. Again, you have to be very diligent with your diagnosis of this, but it is something that they should be able to tolerate. Hypersensitivity itself, these patients are unable to be rechallenged, and we know that it does pose increased risk to patients themselves and can lead to further problems and events throughout therapy. So our options in that sense are desensitization. This was primarily used during the Erwinia shortages of the late 20-teens, and now with recombinant Erwinia being approved in 2021, and recommended by the NCCN, the typical course of action in hypersensitivity now is to switch to a based product. And when prior options have not worked, this does limit what you can do, and this then leads to discontinuation of therapy for patients. So when switching to an alternative product, be that recombinant Erwinia, to replace an E. coli asparaginase product due to hypersensitivity, there are several recommended doses. It's important that you understand these two separate dosing regimens. So, On the left, receiving dose on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Monday at 25 milligrams per meter squared, Wednesday at 25 milligrams per meter squared, and then Friday at 50 milligrams per meter squared for a total of six doses is one option and an option that is employed most frequently because this allows you to not give dosing on the weekends. However, to maintain flexibility for patients and their situations and centers, there is also a dosing regimen approved that includes 25 milligrams per meter squared given every other day. But when using this dosing regimen, it's important that you're using a total of seven doses. And so as we think about these dosing regimens in the real world, I think scheduling our infusion appointments based on these Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or every other day schedules based on each patient's circumstances is important to keep in mind. Additionally, premedication is recommended based on the label. Premedication is actually recommended now in all aspergionase products, but this is a recommendation and not a mandate. And so practices do vary throughout centers. And this should be kept in mind. And so then, as we sum up the prominent aspergase toxicities and recommended mitigation strategies, again, we have our four core or toxicities of special interest: hypersensitivity, pancreatitis, thrombosis, and hepatotoxicity. We talked about the rates and the risk factors. So, what can we do in terms of mitigation? So, hypersensitivity premedication is an option. You can switch to an alternative product or consider desensitization. But again, with an alternative product available, this is historically what's been done, and the evidence shows this provides equivalent outcomes. We do not re-challenge patients in the setting of greater than or equal to grade 2 hypersensitivity if this is a hypersensitivity reaction. If it is an infusion reaction that you're deeming this has happened, then it is something that you can consider. In terms of pancreatitis, so again, this is a side effect that happens in 5 to 10% of patients. What can we do to mitigate this? There's really nothing that's been shown in terms of mitigation and rechallenging can be quite difficult. So it can be considered for grade 1 or 2 pancreatitis or mild grade 3. But again, this is something that you would have to be doing in a, a controlled setting with expertise, specific expertise in this area. For patients with severe grade 3 or any grade 4 pancreatitis, the patient should not be rechallenged. Thrombosis happens in, and again, about 5% of patients. There are mitigation techniques that have been recently investigated, including thromboprophylaxis. There has been some potentially encouraging results, but nothing that has been recommended for our patient population at this time. In the setting of appropriately treated and resolved thrombosis, though, patients can be rechallenged. Hepatotoxicity, something that we see in young adults and in adults themselves, this is quite a common side effect. Most typically involves increase of your transaminases or transaminitis. hyperbilirubinemia, which is the side effect we should be most concerned for in this category, Liver injury can occur in up to 10% of patients. So, in terms of mitigation, I think people have investigated dose capping, and this has shown in obese individuals to potentially mitigate some of this. There are additional investigations underway in terms of supplementation that can be used, particularly with levoncarnitine and B12, which is under investigation, and people are using this outside of clinical trials at times. But again, this has not been proven in a randomized controlled fashion. Paleotoxicity, in this setting, you can re-challenge patients, again, depending on the severity. If you have a patient with a grade 3, grade 4 cholestatic liver injury, it would be something that you would potentially consider discontinuation of treatment as well. And again, this should require a specific expertise in this area as you would consider rechallenging in the setting of this happening. The information in this module on addressing asparagus toxicity and dosing considerations is available as a downloadable practice aid, so please access this material as a resource for your practice. That concludes our question based assessment on the use of asparaginase in pediatric ALO. Please review your learning plan summary before you leave, and I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RRV 860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.